Well, do please take out your Bibles and your reading glasses. Our text today is just found in one little footnote, at least in our ESVs, and we'll talk about why that is later on. But we're looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, at least as we prayed it a few moments ago, footnote number five in our church Bibles. And I'll read from verse nine. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Spend enough time around other people and you start to change. Human beings are sponges, aren't we? Which means that when you grow up in a family, there are certain traits you just absorb. Our kids have become absolutely insufferable bread snobs. You present them with a loaf of sourdough and they will sniff it and poke it and ask if we made it or if, heaven forbid, we bought it in a supermarket. And it's because they've caught my insufferable bread snobbery. And it's not the only way those poor kids have been changed by hanging around their father. You spend 21 years raising them and then the therapists spend the rest of their lives trying to fix the mess you made. The truth is, even the wretched dog looks more and more like you the longer he lives in your home. He spends all day sitting at my feet in the study, and so when it's coffee time, he starts to check his watch. When I get a little peckish, so does he. The people we spend time with change us. So why shouldn't we expect that spending time with our heavenly Father will change us too. People often say that prayer changes things and you can dive down deep into all sorts of theological rabbit holes with them about what sense that is true under the sovereignty of God. But one thing is for sure, prayer changes us. It does things to our hearts. And one place that we see that so clearly is in this conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. The basic truth that we learn from these final words is this. True prayer is based on worship. At its core, praying isn't about asking for stuff. It's about delighting in someone, our Father and God and King. And these last words give us the reason for everything we've been taught to ask. That's why it starts with a for. Do you see that? A since. Everything we've asked, we've asked for the love of God. And so we end by praising him and all that he is. We close our prayer with a doxology, something that says glory to you. But the funny thing we discover is that the more we praise and delight in our father, the more we're encouraged in what we ask him. Because God is all that we praise him for, all that we delight in, well, he's somebody worth praying to. Now, before we dive into that and what this 
little half of a verse means, it's worth just spending a few minutes on whether or not we ought to pray these words at all. Are they even in our Bibles? Sometimes it is helpful to face up to these more awkward questions directly, at least so that we can all see that Christianity has nothing to hide. We can trust the scriptures we've got. We can explain how we got them. So what explains this little half a verse that we pray every week in church being demoted here to a footnote? Well, take a deep breath, and we'll give that question about eight minutes. And if these questions have never bothered you at all, then feel absolutely free to set a little timer so that you wake up for the bit that is meant to change our hearts, not just our heads. But the answer really is that we are blessed with a staggering, a genuinely staggering number of ancient manuscripts for the text of the New Testament. It's a good thing. Obviously, we don't still have the physical scrolls that Matthew or Paul or their scribes hand wrote. Those were passed around from church to church, and they were treasured and coffee-stained and went the way that all bits of paper and papyrus will one day go. But what we do have today are hundreds and hundreds of careful copies dating back closer to those originals than for almost any other comparable historical book. And while God inspired the original text and he's miraculously preserved the transmission of that text right down to us, he doesn't promise that we will never make a typo when we print out a new Bible or that we'll never accidentally skip half a line or that a note some scribe makes in the margin saying, wow, praise God, won't over time become part of the tradition of that particular chain of manuscripts. God doesn't promise we will never make copying mistakes. What he has done is providentially, miraculously given us such an insane volume of evidence that it's very easy to see when there's any discrepancy and to compare it to the majority text. And that's why very occasionally in the New Testament we'll get a little footnote like this one. It's just a product of the richness of our manuscript evidence. We can afford to be open. Broadly speaking, what the church has handed down to us are two distinct families of New Testament manuscripts. One from the East, from the Greek-speaking world, and one from the West, so the Byzantine and the Alexandrian manuscript families. And the amazing thing is that 99% of the time, all of that evidence is in complete agreement. We're left with the odd half a verse and one story in John's Gospel and the second ending to Mark. That's it. None of which adds any new doctrine or changes Christian truth. So this little half a verse that we've got this morning is part of that 1%. Now the vast, vast majority of our ancient manuscripts come from the Greek-speaking Byzantine tradition. Because in the West, when Latin took over, by and large, people stopped bothering with original languages. We stopped making copies. So when the reformers went back to the sources and began to translate the Bible again, it was manuscripts from that tradition that they had available to them. That's why if you read an older Bible, something like the King James Version, you'll see these words appear. They're found in 
all of those Byzantine manuscripts, the majority text. These days, though, a lot of scholars, like the ones who translated the ESVs we've got in church or the NIVs a lot of us have at home, a lot of scholars today prefer the other set of documents, the other tradition, the Alexandrian family, which tends to leave this 1% of disputed texts out. And the reason for that is although we have far fewer of those manuscripts, we rediscovered two of them in the 19th century, two codices that are very high quality and very early, and they agreed with various other fragments of scrolls we found around the Red Sea and Egypt. And if you're a critical scholar, piecing together a document, a, a complete text, often you think cleaner and simpler is better. You prefer to leave stuff out rather than include stuff in. And for what it's worth, I'm not actually sure that is such an open and shut case. The most helpful way I've heard someone describe this is as two branches of a big river. Imagine you're trying to make a map and go right back to the source and decide which branch of that river is the main one, which one will keep the name of the river. On the one hand, you've got a little stream that goes back significantly further towards the headwaters. The manuscript family that leaves this out is about one century older than the very earliest gospel documents from the tradition that keeps it in. So the copies date back closer to the source. But on the other hand, you've got a river that is deep and broad. The earliest copies we still have from that Byzantine family might have been published a few hundred years later, but it was being used and reproduced and accepted far more widely all over the Greek-speaking world. It's why there are so many of those documents, hundreds and hundreds of them, including the ones that were handed down to John Calvin or handed down to your granny. So I think it's very hard to say definitively this side is right and this side is wrong. Better, I think, to be open and to thank God for preserving so much so providentially for us and thank him that we can normally have such an extraordinary degree of confidence. And then take the 1% on a case-by-case basis. So what about these words then? Well, there are two things we can say about them, absolutely certainly. The first is that these run very deep in our family tradition. One of the very earliest extra-biblical books that we have is a set of instructions for new Christians called the Didache. It was written sometime around 90 AD, possibly when the apostle John was still alive. And as early as that, end of the first century, you find Christians praying a version of these words. In fact, a lot of scholars point out it was so automatic that you would close prayer with something like this, some sort of doxology, that some scribes might have just taken it for granted as if they were leaving out the stage instructions. So today in church, we almost always say something like, let's bow our heads before we pray, but we wouldn't think to write that down in the prayer book. So these words run very deep in our family tradition. Christians have been praying them for a long time. And secondly, they run very deep in our Bible's teaching. Whoever said them first... They are thoroughly, thoroughly biblical words. In fact, if you go back to David's prayer in 
First Chronicles chapter 29, you'll find almost every word of this doxology. So whether Jesus first spoke them in this form or some other writer, this has been how many Bible-loving Christians far and wide have prayed in every generation of believers from the earliest centuries of the church, giving all glory to God. Jim Packer said they may not be in the best manuscripts, but they're certainly in the best tradition. I think that's helpful. So with all that said, what is this little doxology teaching us then about prayer? And how is it going to change our hearts to spend time with God our Father like this? Well, briefly, three simple observations. Prayer argues, prayer praises, and prayer trusts. Firstly, prayer argues. It is good and right to argue with God in our prayers. And by that, I don't mean we should be quarrelsome. Obviously, we are often quarrelsome, aren't we, as children? We squabble with our parents as if we were fighting over some grave matter of injustice. I don't mean that. But I do mean that we should give God reasons for what we ask him. Present him with arguments. Now, we're a church that loves a good therefore when it comes up in a Bible study, aren't we? We train our kids to chase up those logic words and ask how the argument works and what's the therefore, therefore. My hunch is that most of us don't fill our prayer life with therefores and in order that's and be that as it mays. We pray a little differently, don't we? But the Lord's Prayer ends with a massive because, a logic word. Father, keep your name holy and bring in your kingdom and let your will be obeyed and feed your flock and forgive our sins and protect your children for, since, because yours is the kingdom, power, and glory. Often as a father, you want to hear why your children are asking for what they're asking. My kids are convinced that Calpol is the nectar of the gods, some magical pink substance with the power to cure all ailments. And so when they ask you for cowpaw, you've got to probe. Often what they need really isn't some spoon of sugary strawberry paracetamol. They need to know that their father has listened to them, who's understood why they feel bad. And you want them to articulate what it is that really matters. So when you pray, Give God your arguments. The Bible's prayers are full of them. Reasons why he should answer us. But here's the thing. A lot of our reasons aren't actually very good ones. And sometimes even the very act of thinking them through helps us to see that, starts to shape our hearts. Most of my bad arguments go something like this. Father, do what I'm asking because my, my pride will be hurt if you don't. My hard work will be wasted if you don't prosper this ministry. Do what I'm asking because my fear, my feelings, my appetite, my unfair treatment. And those won't always be bad arguments. You're his child. He does care about you. But those arguments will always be tainted. We're never on firm ground with God. 
arguing our case based on what we deserve. Jesus' prayer doesn't end because mine. His prayer ends because thine, because your kingdom and your power, and because of your glorious, wonderful character. And that is a much, much better way to argue. Ultimately, we pray what we pray because we delight in our Father. We care about his name, his honor. And every time God's children are on our knees, his name and his honor are at stake. Think about what it means for God not to answer the prayer that Jesus, his son, taught us to pray. If God's name were not kept holy in the world, if God's kingdom were never to come or his will forever defied, if God's children were not fed, if God's redeemed were not forgiven, if God's own were lost to the evil one, if any of that were to happen, then the kingdom would not truly be his. He wouldn't be in control. His power would be called into question. His glory would be tarnished. And neither now nor eternity would belong to his king. And so long as those are the things we truly care about as we pray, well, our prayers are based on an argument so strong that the finest legal minds in all the country couldn't dream it up. Your prayer has to be based in something, some form of argument. True prayer is based on worship, the love of his name. We pray what we pray because we delight in our Father. And here's the lovely thing. We get to delight in him as we pray. In other words, prayer isn't simply based on worship. Prayer is an act of worship. It's taking time to be with him and enjoy all that is good about him. In other words, secondly, prayer praises. Maybe we think of prayer primarily as something like a shopping list, and we often make it a bit like that, don't we? Real prayer, though, is much more like a love letter. But because this is father-son love, not romantic love, we don't even have to separate those things too artificially. Part of how you love a father is by leaning on him. Perhaps we feel guilty sometimes that all we ever do is ask for stuff. Well, in the Lord's Prayer, those petitions, the things we ask for and the praise are completely bound up together. The very act of asking God for stuff, of taking time to pray to him, is acknowledging that he is radically different to us, radically worthy and dependable. And so when we acknowledge that the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to him, it's an acknowledgement of our dependence. We're confessing that those things don't belong to us. And so we can ask for things in a way that's actually worshipful, in a way that's filled with love and praise and gives glory to him. Because God the Father loves us to depend on him. We're acknowledging here that we have no kingdom to hope for, but his kingdom. It's all his. We have no power of our own, but the power he gives us we have no glory to our name other than the glory of being his children. It's all his. 
when we praise him then for his kingdom, we're saying that God has the right to rule over everything and everyone, and he will have that right forever and ever, he and not us. We're acknowledging his sovereignty. When we praise him for his power, we're saying that God has not just the right, but the absolute ability to do all that is good. He is almighty. He can do anything at all that doesn't contradict his own good, loving nature. And he will have that ability forever and ever. He and not us. So we're acknowledging there his strength. And when we praise him for his glory, we're saying that God has a character worthy of our worship. All that God is and all that God does is magnificent and good. And his character will be magnificent and good forever and ever, his and not ours. We're acknowledging that God is wonderful. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are sovereign and strong and wonderful and that you will remain sovereign and strong and wonderful forever and ever. And to delight in those truths, as we pray, is to pledge ourselves to all that they mean. Loving Father, since the kingdom and power and glory are yours, I will not pray for my little kingdom, but for the advancement of yours. And I will not depend on my feeble power as I pray but lean on yours. And I will not seek my earthly glory in what I ask, but long for yours. What happens to our hearts, though, as we fill our prayer with praise like that, as we delight in this Father who is so deeply sovereign and strong and wonderful? Well, the more we delight in those truths, the more we're encouraged to pray to him, aren't we? Nothing feeds prayer quite like praise. There are so many tips and tricks that people will sell you for a richer and fuller prayer life. But the very best thing you can do if you are struggling to pray is to fill your heart and mind with things that are true about God. Because the God of Jesus Christ really is all these things. It's a joy to pray to him. All that is in him really is sovereign and strong and wonderful, and that means we can trust him. Why do we add that little word, amen, then, to the end of our prayers? Well, we say that word, point number three, because prayer trusts. Amen is a word expressing trust. When we join in together with an amen at the end of prayer, we're testifying together that we have confidence in this one we're praising and praying to. Out there in the world, when someone drops a truth bomb, the cool kids respond, don't they, by saying truth. In here, we do the same thing, but because it's church, we do it in Hebrew, because obviously that is the language we'll all be speaking in heaven. Amen is just the Hebrew word for truly. In other words, we ask all of this, Father, because everything we've just praised you for really is true. You really do have the right to rule all things and the ability to do everything good. 
and a character that is wonderful and loving and gracious. And so however feeble I feel in asking you all of this, and however undeserving I am, you are able to answer me and you care enough to answer me. Truth. I wonder if you're ever conscious of how foolish we Christians look when we close our eyes and speak to our invisible Father in the sky. You feel so vulnerable, don't you, when you pray? It is the last hope of desperate people. Why would we do that unless the kingdom and power and glory really did belong to the very Father we're praying to? Well, if we want to grow in confidence in that truth, there is nowhere better to look than to Jesus himself, the one who gives us this prayer. He came that first Christmas as the king of God's kingdom, hidden in humility. He came as the power through whom God would save the world, clothed in weakness, He came as the very glory of God the Father, full of grace and truth, but veiled in human flesh. And he came to deliver that kingdom and power and glory to God his Father for all time. And with all the authority of heaven, Jesus uttered that little word, Amen, far more than anyone else in the Bible. It is true. Jesus had a habit of saying it before he'd even spoken a word. Truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say to you. And ultimately, every single one of our amens are a response to his, to what he has said and promised and done. Paul tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Here's why we have the confidence to say that God is good and God is for us and it's worth praying to him because he sent his son to prove it. That is why we add our amens to his with trust, with real confidence. The more we delight in who God is and what he's done for us, the more courage we find to pray when we know that we're undeserving and it feels very foolish and very weak. So friends, let's not be mumblers when it comes to that last little word. This is where we get to testify to God and to each other that we really want what we've asked for and we really believe that God is good for it. So do we want it? And do we believe it? Are we being honest? Or is that little word, amen, the shortest lie that we ever tell? If we're going to say it, let's belt it out with joy and with confidence. Let's commit to our amens the way we commit to a bacon roll or the kids commit to a happy meal. One of the church fathers, a man called Jerome, said that there was a congregation in Rome who got so stuck into their amens that from outside the church, it sounded like a clap of thunder that shook the temples of the idols. I wonder what idols were shaking here in Stockbridge. They meet downstairs once a month. Do they hear us? Do they hear us as we delight in the goodness of our God and praise his glorious name and trust in the promises of his son? 
a son whose entire kingdom and power and glory was bent towards earth and displayed in a manger and on a cross as he came to seek and save lost children like us. How could we pray and praise a God like that and not believe he was big enough or loving enough to answer? Well, let's bow our heads and praise him together. Let's pray. God of love and might, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you for all that you are and for all that you are to us. We praise you for the kingdom, power, and glory that the Lord Jesus came to conquer and claim and display in his saving work for ruined sinners. And we ask, Lord God, that when we need courage to pray, we would fix our eyes on him and remember that we have a Father in heaven who is sovereign and strong and deeply, deeply wonderful, now and forever and ever. Amen.